Welcome, everyone, to the Capsule 21 Weekly Podcast. This is Capsule 21 Weekly number seven, and it is titled The Final Episode. This is, in fact, the final episode of the Capsule 21 Weekly Podcast. And by that, I mean it is a final episode before we are reborn in a new form, and that form is as a real podcast. Previously, I was calling it a podcast. It was just a Twitter Spaces. Now it is going to be a real podcast. It will be on Anchor. I'm going to tweet this. You will see it, and there will be great content. And if you join this space, which means you're not listening to this right now, but for the next episode, you can listen to this and join, you can be on the podcast too. Now, it might seem a little bit odd for the first episode of the podcast to be called the final episode, but it gets at a very deep truth in the human condition, which is that there is no such thing as the beginning. There's always one step back. And I will tell you my favorite parable for this deep truth, which is the beginning of the Bible, which is uh, definitely an interesting book to take a look at because the first letter of the Bible, if anyone knows, if you want to just make a note in your head, the first letter of the Bible is Bet, which is the Hebrew letter basically for B. I don't know if it's exactly like that, but it's basically B. And the point there is that the first letter of the Bible is not A. And the reason for that may be, although what's the intent of the author, like who cares, but just nothing is at the beginning. The very beginning of in the beginning, there was nothing and then God made it. Even that starts with B. There's no A, there's no who made God, there's no all of this other stuff. And so this is the final episode and we are being born and it is the new beginning. So welcome to the official first and final episode of the Capsule 21 weekly podcast. We are Capsule 21. We are an art collective consisting of me, Piv, and Dove. We are about timeless art. We are about the annotation of art. We are about on-chain art. And, and basically, we're about living life to the fullest. Every day, you should live like it is your last. That is a core tenet uh, of Capsule 21, which means getting out there, creating art, talking about art, uh, and uh, uh, spending time with people uh, who you uh, uh, get along with in those capacities. And like on a personal level. But it's not just about the personal level. It's like being able to collaborate and stuff. So welcome to the pod. Dove and Pib, what's going on? What's up? How's it going? Did How's everyone doing? Fact? Can we get some claps? Can we get some claps in chat? In chat. This isn't Twitch. In the in the space. Yeah. Yeah. What's up, Piv? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm busy in the museum right now, so there are already some youngs in the museum. Capsule oh. twenty one museum. Let's go. Amazing. We have to link that from the site. This is an on-cyber museum. It's uh, onsiber.io slash timecapsule21 hyphenated. And basically you can see at once the sort of um, perversion of the digital uh, art that we are creating, which is to say, if you're creating something timeless, you should not be thinking about a 21st century museum, which is a very specific context. But at the same time, seeing a piece of uh, punk derivative on a wall is quite beautiful, especially if it is abstract. So uh, we're going to do some shows in there, uh, but for today, we have a pretty great agenda. So, as always, we start with reader-suggested topics. Uh, there are no suggested topics, so we're going to pass that, but we've got well, we espresso do have, here. we got espresso, yeah. So, do you have a topic? Espresso, welcome to the pod. Espresso, they're, what's going on? Uh... If you want to say something... You're muted. If you don't want to say something, remain muted. So, reader topics. There's 
Hey, Yo, how's it going? Give it to us. Hey, no, no uh, particular comment. Just uh, on my drive home, just figured I'd chime in uh, where I can. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Welcome. Cool. Welcome and thank you. And read your suggested topics or how we start. There's none today, but you can always tweet at me or uh, raise your hand at any time. But we want to be sensitive to our, to our readers. And that's my kind of jocular way of talking about our listeners. But we oh, have a couple if no, one, if no one has anything, I have a user submitted question that we haven't talked about. Perfect. Okay, so today, some you know blockchain archaeologists, self-proclaimed, say that they've found a new first NFT. Okay, they found the new first ever image hosted on chain. Okay. What do we think? What do we think about these name? Do you know about the name coin stuff? What do we think about that? What is that? I don't. Uh, tell me what you think and maybe it will, cause I have no idea. Yeah. Name coin is like, I don't like, I don't even think I can do a good job explaining it. They're just like proto NFTs. Like they're very, very early, but you could like write something to the Ethereum blockchain, right? You could just like basically put your username. It was basically a way to like create a profile, um, on the blockchain. But some people figured out that they could be kind of clever and insert an image um into their username by putting like base 64 code inside of the username field if they just like put an image there instead uh they could like hack an image to be on chain so some people are like heralding these as the very first on-chain nft and so you can go to a contract and do a function and, and out pops the space 64 thing yeah i believe so i can try to find the thread and then pin it to the top and you can own it. You can own. I mean, even oh, if there's no espresso, image, espresso just did it. Hell yeah! Even if there's no image, it could still be the first. You know, does this get credit for being the first? Like, is there a, a Neil Dash thing? I really should know this, but okay. So this thread is basically saying, Namecoin Explorer. So no, they're calling it right. the first ever. Let me get the wording right. They're calling this the first on-chain image and file ever minted. Right, 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 right. Okay, so I, 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 I'd have to look closer at this, but this actually segues into uh, a really important thing that we're going to be talking about uh, later. It's Agenda 3, but we can kind of get into a bit of it now. Is like, what does that mean, right? Like, Clicking on that link, it seems like there is a an explorer, like a block explorer, like an Etherscan uh, type thing, and you are looking at a um, a transaction uh, a transaction receipt of some kind. The question is, is this something that someone put in the call data, which is what it's called? You submit data with your transaction, and then that got you know, caught by a, a, a transaction explorer. Is this like in, a, in the receipt of a transaction only, or is it actually stored in the blockchain inside the internal state of a, of a contract? And so this is uh, very much related to the, um, uh, the sort of one of the later topics that we're going to be getting into here, which is basically about the, uh, uh, the Michelin, am I saying that right? The Michelin uh, guide, essentially. Uh, you can and just I'm say gonna... Michelin. It's, it's actually American uh, word. The Michelin star guide is named after Michelin tire. who used to write reviews for restaurants along the highway system of America. I know, but it's good to say, but do you know what the stars mean? That's right. 
But in French, it's Michelin. I told you. Yeah, but it's Amer- it's a it's an American yeah, it's company. It's Michelin. Yeah, it's in <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one star means it's worth a stop. Two stars means it's worth a detour. And three stars, I forget, it's something like you should make a special trip out of it, basically. So, you know, if a restaurant says we got a Michelin star, it's one star that means, oh, great, you know, you're worth a, a stop. But I think there's been star deflation. But I just put up this, um, this tweet now, which is an iconic tweet from last year that maybe we're going to update uh, today. And we might as well just get, get into this now, actually, uh, which is, what does on-chain mean? Like, as always, with words that um, are colloquial, but refer to underlying, like, deeply technical concepts, it's like, it's not always clear that two people are talking about the, uh, the same thing. And so what is, on, what is on-chain NFT? What is on-chain art? Well, for one thing, an NFT is something where, you know, it has an ID and an owner, and that's stored on-chain so that OpenSea can know who owns something. Uh, but then when we say on-chain, we're really referring to the fact that kind of the art or other metadata should be uh, on-chain or chain-adjacent in some way. And then that's, that should be good because nerds uh, like I am like it. And also it has other nice qualities such as uh, data longevity and uh, data composability and these kinds of things. And so if we look at the tweet, if anyone wants to just look at this tweet up here and I can say it for, for the pod, basically this tweet is giving you the stars. So it says X okay, is the first thing, which is not really stars. It's like the apps of all stars. It says IPFS, are we, or content hash. Now, content hash really just means IPFS. So just ignore that. So IPFS or are we, that's zero stars. One star, data stored via call data. And so this is what I'm suspecting this name coin thing might be about, but I might be wrong. Call data is basically the uh, data that is in your uh, transaction when you submit it to a contract. So for example, uh, if you are saying, hey, I want to mint an NFT, the call data might be like the number one, because that's like you want to mint one NFT, the call data could be 10. And so what if you put some really interesting thing in this call data uh, and submit that to the contract? Well, even if the contract does nothing with that, the call data itself, even if the transaction fails, the call data itself uh, will be preserved in a transaction receipt uh, by Ethereum nodes and available on Etherscan. So, you know, this is the lowest form because this is not actually on chain. In other words, the blockchain itself does not store uh, this information, the call data of a request by default. It is picked up only by people who are looking at the blockchain. So this is kind of this meta question. Is it available to the blockchain itself, i.e. to other contracts within transactions, or is it available merely to people who are watching the blockchain you know, from the sidelines and not contributing anything whatsoever, but maybe doing so. So, so Etherscan is, is someone watching it. Etherscan is a centralized website. And if Etherscan went away, then we'd have a problem because we need someone else to watch it. And so it turns out that uh, at least right now that every Ethereum node, if they are a real node, which means if Ethereum is working, uh, every Ethereum node uh, uh, is something that you can turn to to watch and you can even watch the past from it. And so if Etherscan went away, someone else could create a new centralized service uh, that watched the blockchain. And uh, in doing so, uh, we would not lose uh, anything. So there's a certain on-chainness here, but there are a couple of problems uh, with this approach. So one approach is it is not available on the chain to contracts. So if a contract, for example, wants to say, hey, uh, you know, this mint is free to someone who owns this other NFT. The contract has to be able to check who owns this other NFT. And likewise, for example, if the contract wanted to say, you know, hey, like I want to, you know, do something with the image of this other contract. Like I wanted to 
you know, put a take the SVG of um, well, you could say wides. If you want to take the SVG of uh, of a punk and you want to stretch it out, you know, that is only possible if the punk uh, is available on chain. You know, so these are the advantages. But there's even more kind of uh, visceral advantage here, which is that the blockchain is not something. You know, it's a chain, right? And and the chain means that when you uh, break the chain, everything goes away. And so you can't break the chain. So the blockchain does not work uh, unless every chain link is there. And so if you put something on the blockchain, you can be very confident uh, that you know the thing you put on there is gonna be there in a year because everyone after you has to include it. This is not the case for transaction receipts. And in fact, there is a proposal out there called EIP 4444, which in my opinion should be called 6666 because uh, it's, questionable, in my opinion, EIP 44444 basically is saying, we are going to, thank you, I got one emoji there for that one. Please put emojis if you really want to. It, it only helps the algorithm, makes you know everything better, but it's not, a, not a, a big deal. If this EIP goes through, which I think is unlikely, then nodes will no longer, they're going to change the rules. Nodes, nodes no longer will be forced to carry all of this historical stuff. So all of the call data stuff could be lost. And the reason is that it is not part of the blockchain so they can change the rule. So the rule today is you have to have it, but they can change that rule. The rule today is also that the blockchain has to be unbroken, but they cannot change that rule without uh, messing everything up. So you have this future-proofness uh, of on-chain. And so I want to just say, and I'll take that, that question, Xerox Chuck, who is an emoji uh, reactor. I want to um, now just sort of jump into a, uh, before I go up the chain, I want to talk about another uh, call data uh, issue. And um, that is this fair XYZ thing. Okay, so fair XYZ, which I think is pretty cool, uh, at fair XYZ, they're in my uh, thread on this subject, which, <coughs> excuse me, I will, uh, uh, which I will pin now. Fair XYZ basically offers this thing where they'll say, okay, uh, we will mint you an NFT that says you minted this other NFT, which is actually pretty cool, I think, because you know, what is an NFT? Uh, you know, yes, it's a picture, but really, you know, as we always say, it's about the store backstory and all this kind of interesting stuff. And so who minted an NFT is actually pretty uh, interesting. Like, you know, if, if someone, uh, you know, claimed the very first CryptoPunk or, you know, uh, minted the very first, you know, Yunk or, or sold the very first Yunk for that matter, someone was talking about that. Uh, that's pretty interesting. And why not memorialize it on the blockchain uh, with another NFT? But it turns out there's a big problem here because the minter, i.e. the facts surrounding the minting of an NFT, uh, is one star Michelin, okay? It is not on chain. It is only available to observers of the blockchain. It's the receipt. You know, you, when you mint something, you get the thing you minted, and that's an on-chain thing. But the receipt saying, I minted it on this date, and here's how much it costs, and all that kind of stuff, that is not on chain. And so it turns out there is no way to, in a on-chain way, know that you minted something. And then therefore there is no way in an on-chain way to give you a new NFT based on your minting of something. So you know how they're like an allow list that says you have to own a Yunk to mint a Cyberpunk. There's no way to say you have to have minted a Yunk uh, to mint a Cyberpunk. And so the question is, how are they actually uh, doing this? But to pause here for a moment, this is the uh, level one Michelin star that I think is going on with the name coin thing. Uh, that brings up some interesting fair XYZ things uh, and that gets at some big questions about what the blockchain uh, future is going to be with EIP 4444. What's up, y'all? Chuck, you were going to say something or did I? 
answer it. Probably. How are you going? Um, question is, is EIP 4444 in an attempt to reduce the amount of space that the that a node needs? Yes. To function? Yes, it is. It is uh, making the very reasonable claim that having the entire history and life story of every little detail for every single node uh, makes it harder to be a node. And when it's harder to be a node, that has other negative qualities like less decentralization and all kinds of other uh, things. So, um, you know, so, does, kind of, so does culling the blockchain, though, doesn't it? Culling transactions also does right, it. Right, which is and why, things yeah. like on-chain data. Would I mean when you when you remove stuff from your hard drive, what do you take out first? Yeah, I, I think. Um, I think uh, yes, it, it also presents these other problems with decentralization, which means it's harder to get for normal people to get a hold on this, you know, kind of thing. You know, I think I don't think it'll actually happen, but the real issue, I think, and it's not going to happen for a while, even if it does. But the real issue, I think, for anyone who's you know deeply serious about the on-chain thing, which whatever, but it's, you know, anything that can happen will happen, right? Like that is guaranteed. I think we can all agree in the past period of time in humanity, anything that can happen will happen. And you can't break the, break the blockchain. If you, if you remove something from the blockchain, that ends Ethereum, which might also happen, but you can't remove something from the chain and still have Ethereum, but you can delete all of this history and still have Ethereum. And so it is going to happen. And so that's why uh, if you're planning to live long enough to see that, you should at least be entertaining these questions surrounding how to, um, you know, how and whether to, to, to try to, to mitigate this in your, in your work and whether it's practically relevant or philosophically relevant uh, or anything like that. But that's the one star. That's why it's one star, uh, basically. And it's not composable, yeah. too. I think the beauty of it is, is that if, if you really did care about it, you would take the blockchain and actually oh, and I'm sure it's already been done you know, to actually download it as, in its entirety if this does go through if 4444 does go through then it's time for archival nodes and things like that. Yeah, I mean I think the challenge then is um, you know, if you do download or someone else does download, it's like how do you know you got it? You know, how do you know you didn't make a mistake or someone didn't tamper with it? You know, there are services like, uh, you know, IPFS where, you know, and this is the content hash thing from before, where you can have some, um, you know, guarantee of um, persistence where if you show me the thing later, I can verify that it was the thing it was before that no one tampered with it. You have something like R, where, but you have to pay for IPFS. You have something like Arweave, which is supposed to be free, but as not free, but supposed to be one-time payment, but that has, you know, censorship stuff uh, that could be an issue. Uh, here. So, you know, there's really no uh, easy uh, answer. But the important thing for us is just to uh, is just to get it, basically. But, you know, to be fair, this is uh, the original. So it should be three stars in terms of originality. So the original um, Bitcoin block, right, had the famous uh, on-chain art in it, which was the chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. Basically, uh, Satoshi put this in there no one knows why, but maybe it's a commentary on fractional reserve banking, or maybe it's a, um, you know, to, to, to make sure that, say, well, it couldn't have happened before X date, like when you hold up a newspaper to prove it was the date. But there's text in the first Bitcoin block, and that, you know, Bitcoin is no concept of on-chain because there's no, um, 
uh, internal state uh, of the thing. It's not a computer, uh, but the very first thing uh, ever had this artwork in it, which is this like inscrutable uh, sentence. And so I would say maybe that is the first NFT, the very first Bitcoin thing ever dubbed. So I think you're, you're wrong, actually. I uh, never claimed to be right. I don't know anything about this name coin business. Um, there was a there was a guy on a chair space named Benton, and he was talking about Namecoin and some of the controversies around it. If I can find his um, his Twitter profile and and ask him about maybe to write something out on it, I'll send it through. You know, something that I want to express because uh, it's relevant to this uh, conversation and especially the Namecoin stuff is that it, it matters much less than everyone thinks. Uh, what was the first? of something like i don't think that it's actually that important to be the first nft or to be like the first on-chain nft like i think these are kind of useless metrics um that people are just like searching for um you know no one is going around being like oh like was this the first acrylic painting was you know was this the first ever you know x y or z uh medium for art and uh you know it's just like it's kind of fascinating. Like it's an interesting little historical touchstone. Um, but how relevant it is. I don't, I don't know if it really matters. But I thought Yunks was the first NFT SVG punk derivative to use FE turbulence. That's what we always say. Is this, that is true. That's true. Yes. We're getting some applause here. <laughs> no, but I, I fundamentally agree with you. And I think it's actually not a well-formed kind of even comment or question. If you look at like the history of the world, in other words, like, you know, the most common like battleground for these so-called priority claims is the history of science, basically, because everyone's discovering stuff. And it's like, oh, like actually Edison didn't discover anything, but Tesla did it all. Or, you know, Alexander Graham Bell didn't discover the, the telephone. And there's some non-joke things here about who actually gets credit for stuff and what groups of people don't and all this kind of thing. So it's, it's, a, it's a legit uh, uh, sort of social uh, question. But in terms of the actual sort of epistemological or philosophical question, it really uh, is impossible because the uh, uh, thing that you are discovering and the discovery of that thing and knowing what that thing is are all. So as an example, the classic example of this is in the uh, history of chemistry and the question who discovered oxygen. OK, so who discovered it? Who, who, who named it? And so what do you want to say about this question? You could say, hey, the person who discovered oxygen is the first chemist who had oxygen in a bottle somewhere. You know, and that pretty obviously doesn't make sense because maybe it was just a total accident. They didn't know uh, what it was. And then, you know, the person who actually did discover it in terms of like putting a name on it is this guy Priestley. And what he called it was not oxygen, but deflogisticated air, which is a mouthful that is a term that exists. I won't get into, but it's a term that only makes sense in the context of the outmoded scientific theory that he was using at the time. And that scientific theory was one that basically, uh, you know, just had no concept of oxygen as a separate entity that was like involved in burning something, but it was rather uh, just a form of air, basically, like a different type of like inner, just out there kind of thing. Not a great explanation, but the point is Lavoisier came along and is a chemist, French guy, uh, Michelin style. And he basically reproduced all of Priestley's experiments, did the exact same experiments, got the exact same results, but talked about it in a different way, saw it differently, interpreted it differently, 
and he gets the credit and it's called oxygen uh, today. And so the point being is, as, as you look backwards in these cases, there's no way to actually say who did the thing first, because did they even know what they were doing? And so when it comes to the first NFT, it's the same thing for me. It's like the reason CryptoPunks were the first NFT is because they were the first ones to know what they were doing, you know, to know what an NFT was going to be culturally and all this kind of stuff. Now, ENS maybe too, but uh, if you look at the landscape today and what an NFT is and where it's going, and you look at the first people to, you know, discover that, you know, I really believe it's, it's uh, you know, it's CryptoPunks, but it's a ridiculous question because uh, there is no uh, uh, a real answer. And yet I love saying I'm the first of things. I wonder... I wonder why. Wonder why that 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 is because you kind of want to try to be the. So reset the room for a second. Okay, this is the first episode of the Capital Twenty One Weekly Podcast. It is called the final episode, which is a nod to endings and beginnings and how you're never starting at the beginning. Bunch of different topics of conversation. Right now, we are talking about the. Tears, uh, the Michelin star guide to on-chain art. And we are talking about things that seem like they're on-chain, but aren't. And in particular, we're talking about this new mint uh, by this uh, Twitter name, at FairXYZ, that is claiming to be able to mint you an NFT that commemorates your minting of a different NFT. And my perspective on this is that this is uh, not possible to do, and they are actually doing a different thing. And uh, I want to say now uh, what that is and how they how they do that. But what do you think? Uh, what do you think, Dove? Do you believe? Do you believe me? Um, I got to be honest. I just like missed what you said because I'm I'm trying to answer Nuno's questions about the vault and chat at the same time. Just what? Yeah. Okay. I'm getting added here. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> this is insane. This is about the cyberfunks. Yeah. It's, it's important to, to, um, uh, it's important to vault. So vault, another topic we could, we could get in today. I've been, uh, these are all my obsessions, but. So, sorry. Can you, can you ask me the question again? I didn't mean to derail. Okay. So yeah. So the question is basically, and who was it in chat who was doubting me? I forget someone in here in, in the chat was doubting me. The question is, Fair XYZ. You can go to their site. Yeah. You can mint a 3D picture that is a picture of another NFT and has a thing on it that says, you minted this other NFT. Congratulations. And so is this cool? And also, is this possible? And if it's not possible, what are they actually doing? Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I So... Yeah, fair XYZ seems like a scam to me, um, and I'm I'm very surprised that they've been officially endorsed and partnered with OpenSea, because I don't understand what service they are even claiming to provide that costs money. Why would I pay for their token? I, I'm at a complete loss for like that simple question. Right. Yes. I mean, I think it's, um, it is, um, well, I don't even know if they're asking you to pay for something. I think, oh, it's a no code platform type thing. Okay. So I think they're, so it's, it's, it's like a manifold type thing, I think, but then the minter.fair.xyz is the thing we're talking about, which 
the way you pay for it is you follow them on Twitter, <laughs> which is sort of uh, funny. Um, but it's a very cool image. If you go to this right now, minter.fair.xyz, I will give it up. Basically, it is like a collectible card where the image of the thing you minted is encased in a translucent thing. And there's a thing on the top that basically says, okay, it's this number on this date. You minted it. There's a check mark on it. And so I, I think it's pretty cool, but it's not possible. And so what is the, uh, what is the thing that's actually kind of going on here? And um, maybe it's also good or maybe it's, maybe it's bad. The reason why it's not possible is because in the general case, and even in really the specific case, but in the general case, you cannot know who minted something because that data, i.e. who initiated the transaction that caused the mint to happen, is not available on chain. That data is only available in the transaction uh, receipt. So when a mint happens, there is an on-chain action called a mint, which transfers a token from the null address to the recipient of that uh, mint. But the uh, person calling that is not part, is not a parameter in that uh, typically. The person calling that uh, is usually in the mint contract validated to make sure the person calling that is you know, on the whitelist or the allow list or the person calling that is sending enough money. Uh, but typically, uh, the person calling that isn't stored on chain. And when you see someone in a transaction receipt minting something, that's because someone observed uh, this transaction and wrote it down and showed it to you. And that person is probably Etherscan. So how do you do something like this? So this is possible because right. of... Uh, tell me why it's possible, sir. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Okay, so it's it's this is possible and powered through um, basically asking a the user to submit the information about what they minted, and so that on its own won't work, right? Because any user can submit anything and say I minted this. So the question is, how do you validate uh, the thing that the user submits is 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 real? And so this kind of gets at this question. Uh, and this overall technique that we've talked about, about some different things, but this is a technique uh, that is known as signatures. And the way a signature works in Ethereum is basically the same way it does when you are writing a letter where you, uh, this was something that was from the old times. Uh, actually, Dove recently did this, so Dove knows. So if you're writing a letter or a postcard at the bottom, you sign your name, then that basically means I said this stuff. So later in court, you know, when the cross-examining attorney is saying like, are these your words? And then you could say, well, I don't remember saying them. And the attorney would then say, but this is your signature, is it not? And you'd have to say, oh, it is my signature. I'm, 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 I'm trapped. So signature, colloquially speaking, is a way of proving uh, that the thing that you're looking at, this message was actually written by and said by this other uh, person. And so the way this works basically on a high level is that uh, when you submit this, the information to mint this, um, minter token, you are saying uh, this other person says that I minted this, basically. And when you look up who that other person is, it's basically a random address, essentially. So, you know, by person, you know, you don't sign a letter, you, you are a, um, an Ethereum address and you can do some signing in a more crypto way or whatever. So basically a cryptographic Ethereum signature is a way of saying this address endorsed this message. This address said this. And so when you actually look this up on this contract, you basically find a random address. Uh, you can look it up on Etherscan. And when you are minting one of these minter tokens, what you are saying is this address says that I minted this other NFT. And you're kind of hoping that that is uh, uh, correct, which is not the same thing as actually minting it because there's a trust thing there, but it's basically as good as you can uh, get um, and this is kind of like the, the signature-based uh, technique. So this is how this works. 
So, right. It's, it's why does fair.xyz's approval or like verification of something like hold more weight than ether scans? Are they even claiming that it does? Or are they just saying like, we're going to do it in a way that's like pretty and nice to look at and ether scan only does it in a way that's like kind of obtuse and nerdy. Well, you need someone to attest to the validity of the fact that you minted it. And that has to be an Ethereum address with a private key. And so EtherScan, it would be really cool if EtherScan had a service that said, hey, uh, we will sign uh, messages that said you minted something. But that would be something they really have to offer in a very specific way. Uh, there would have to be an Ethereum address, not a contract, although there's some stuff there. An Ethereum address that has a private key uh, that is used to sign these things. So they hopefully are looking at EtherScan and then signing messages on that basis, or they're looking at their own thing. Uh, but uh, you, as the minter, can't go directly to EtherScan because EtherScan does not have this service where they are, you know, handing out these signatures that, that attest to the fact that you minted things. Right. Equal service, though. Will, what do you think about this? Um, I think what he said totally makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Um, yeah, I was basically going to say you need like a private key to attest and maybe like a node and then you, you would want to like be careful about like uncle blocks or like whatever, all that shit where like, like, you know, weird shit happens on the chain. I don't know. I'm not super informed on all that. I just know you need to like wait a couple blocks, like seven or more yeah. to like be certain of a result. Uh, and Yeah. Yeah, it would basically be like an off-chain thingy. Right. Like a private thingy. Let me ask another question. Um, I don't know if the guy is in here who is talking about Farrah.xyz and was interested in it. Uh, I don't remember what his name was. But does anyone care? Like, does, like who... Like, who <laughs> like, why does it matter who was the person who minted something? This is something that I was talking about on Twitter, uh, I think, last night is that, you know, the computer truth is not more real than the truth. You know what I mean? Like, just because the computer says something is true doesn't make it hold more weight or, like, make it more valuable than what is, like, com a commonly held truth. Um, so the fact that we're putting so much, like, weight into the system and being like, whoa, like, it's real, like, this is amazing. I can have the Ethereum blockchain confirm that I was the first person to mint this NFT. But like, why do we actually care about that? And does it matter who minted something? Well, I, I mean, care. I think, I think, well, I mean, it depends what you mean by care. Like, I'm not like a care lord. I'm not care pilled, if that's what you mean, sitting around, you know, every... <laughs> care bears. I'm not, you know, care head, but I... I you know, I mean, I think Piv has mentioned this before to me, like if you are thinking about the context behind an NFT, the people who owned it, you know, it's a pretty interesting question. Like, you know, Polly just put out that uh, funk alien for sale. You know, that alien's more valuable to me if I had the money to buy it based on the fact that it was like had this interesting, you know, Polly bought it for low and then sold it for high and then bought it for also kind of high, but less high. And then you know, maybe selling it again. Like, it's just a, it's an interesting thing. Now, I'm not care pill, but anyway, Piv, you, you've talked about this in a non-care pill way. Yeah, yeah, I think that this was indeed basically what I said, that the, 
the history is, is indeed also important. I, I sometimes also wonder if if you have two floor uh, NFTs of something, but so, one of them was sold for a very high price six months ago and the other one not. Which one do you want to buy? Do you have a preference for one of them? If they're basically the same. And is it important? I think, yeah, knowing the price, I think is also a very interesting thing. Like if you were to be able to say, uh, hey, I mean, this is sold the bottom or whatever. But they're, they're the same prices. They're the same price, but one was six months ago bought for a, for much more, for 10 times more. And the other one was never bought. Right. I think it, it'd be the question of, do you want to buy the thing Hemba sold the bottom of or the equivalent thing that someone sold the top of? And the, yeah. and yeah, I think I'm basic. So I would prefer the higher price thing in the past because I think other people are basic too. But, you know, the story in the long term, you know, I think is, is really a fascinating story. I mean, Let's put it, let me put it this way. We are all just looking at the blockchain. None of us are on chain. So we don't actually have direct access to any of this stuff. We are looking at it. And so, you know, we're watching this whole thing unfold. And, and, and that to me is the, you know, the interesting part is like the, you know, hum, the human, the human dynamic uh, here. Now, you know, I'm not trying to say it's like, you know, we're going to be, uh, you know, it's the most interesting thing uh, uh, ever. But I think the fact that you can understand the history I think it's cool. But I, and I also think I know you're pressing on this dove and like, I like the idea of skepticism, but I know when you are talking on a more colloquial or folk level, you are uh, interested in, in, in this, you know, last night, again, referring to the unsanctioned space that happened last night, last night, I broke the news that there is a crypto funk that is not uh, viewable, alone sellable on OpenSea. And the reason for that is that someone who owns the quote-unquote corresponding, which is not the correct word here because it's not, it's conceptual art, not like the image being flipped or whatever, but the person who owns the corresponding punk, the crypto punk, which is an off-chain fact, who, who um, I guess the fact that they own it is, 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 is on-chain, but the, the, you know, the way they came into it and what happened there, and there's some on-chain things, but the really off-chain thing is they sent an email to you know, not Larva Lab saying take it down and then it was taken off of a Web2 marketplace. But that's interesting, you know, that is really uh, interesting, even though it is a, um, uh, you know, even though it's not about the where the punk token looks, spotty Wi-Fi, Dub, you remember? Yeah, I, I guess my point is that, you know, if, if you want to say that that funk is more valuable because in the past it was DMCA'd, and it wasn't on OpenSea. This is a hypothetical future where it's back on OpenSea. If you want to say that it's more valuable because of its history, you know, I don't need blockchain verification that at one point it was DMCA'd in order to be more interested in it. You know, if I have, you know, one trusted community member or, you know, better five or 10 trusted community members who all have this shared memory and history that this token has this interesting thing that happened to it and I can go and look on Twitter screenshots and I can go and look on uh, discord messages and I see that oh yeah this is like that seems to be what happened I see a screenshot I see people talking about it I don't know that I need blockchain verification for that to be interesting or worthy of like greater collector status does that make sense 
I'm, I guess yeah, I'm I mean, flooding I, blockchain technology as a whole right now. <laughs> I think you want some substantiation. And, you know, the question is how far down can you go, uh, you know, before the, the chain comes into play? And yeah, like someone can do the meme thing, like Ryder Rips, right? Uh, created maybe the deal with the glasses meme. So people have been doing meme archaeology, you know, uh, using the mechanism to describe. He didn't create that, by the way. Like this, is it true? Yeah, Indeed, some people say he did, but he probably didn't. <laughs> he did. So, I'm going to say he did. <laughs> yeah, I also think he didn't, but, but that's just you. And that's only how four years ago or so. So how right. much can you trust community members on, on which time frame? Which time, time frame? Right. I mean, people, yeah, people say like, oh, like this collection with his art was on there first and therefore like this is my art and no one else's art. Um, you know, even that doesn't really make sense uh, um, because there's lots of artists who don't mint things to the blockchain. So you could just put somebody else's work and mint it and say that it's yours and you can check the blockchain and no one put this image on the blockchain before I did. Is okay? okay, but that doesn't mean that you created the image. It doesn't mean that you have any rights to it. You're not the uh, the author, and that's interesting as well because I think that's one of the bigger like use cases and sell points for blockchain tech that people kind of will use to evangelize Ethereum and blockchains in general. But I don't think it's a very good point. What's up, Dabba? Yeah, but you know, I, I, look, I agree that fudding. I'll just say one thing, and then Dabba, because you know, the fudding thing. It's like I think it's maybe worth flipping this a little bit and saying, well, okay, fine, you can't prove, you know, that you were the first to come up with the idea, but. Given two transactions, and this is not a trivial thing at all, given two transactions, both people posting the same thing, you can tell who came first, right? And that is, um, I think, pretty cool and literally not possible with any other technology, right? Like, literally not possible. How about this? You can tell when one of them happened. You can get a timestamp. Literally not possible with any other technology. So it's like, you know, I, 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 I you know, I, I definitely think copy-pasting and everything, and we have a museum, in fact, of copy-pasting, but like, you know, if you if you really kind of try to get down to the to the core level of uh, you know how you get things like timestamps in the Web two world, and you really start to say, okay, well, let's just you know fall back on whatever Discord's doing you know lately. It's like, well, uh, maybe you can't uh, trust those uh, uh, folks either to to um, you know be able to tell you about what came first or what or what didn't. So I'm 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 block pilled. Uh, Dow about what up? Out. Hello. Hello. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I thought I, I didn't know I was muted. I, I thought I had unmuted. So I, I, I pinned something to the top of the space about paintings that are hiding in plain sight. And this is in reference to an Arshil Gorky painting that was believed lost in a fire. Um, and I, 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 put, I put this up there kind of as a kind of a, a playful foil of Dovetail's point of view that the, the one conceptual way that you can think about this timestamp in the in the in the NFT contract as being a significant or even more important aspect of the art is if if you start to think of the NFT as part of the art as like a piece of the art rather than just a certificate of authentic authentication right so this painting was famous because um, as, as far as I remember the story Gorky had gone to some farm in Virginia he had painted this and there were photos of it or there was a photo of it. And then, the, and then there was famously this fire in the Virginia farm where he, or barn where he was painting. 
And for many, many years, they thought, well, maybe this is one of the paintings that had been lost in the fire. And then one day, there was an owner of a Gorky painting who said, you know, I'm having a problem with this canvas. It seems to be peeling or it doesn't fit right on the, on the frame. And so this guy took the painting to a restorer and said, can you help me with this? Or he, he asked the guy to come to the house or whatever. And when the restorer looked at it, he was like, something is very weird about the way this painting is, is, is framed. He said, can we take this to an x-ray or we do some spectrometry? Or I, they did some kind of thing with it. It turns out that the painting that was believed lost was being used as the background of a painting uh, just because that's what artists would do. They would try to save money. So they would just flip around a canvas and or, or attach something to the back of another canvas and then just use it as a new space to, to paint on. Um, I don't think I don't know that there I, I'm just putting this out there off the top of my head. I don't know that there's something out there in sort of NFT land that is synonymous with this. But in some cases, I think that the NFT, like in me, 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 or sorry, me, 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 I think that it is true that the NFT is a functional part of the art and it is the art. So I think in some cases it really does matter what this signature says or what this stamp of authority says because it's indeed a artifact itself and a, and, and inextricable, inextricable from the art just in the way that a painting being used as the the back of another painting is both part of the art and also a record of the history of that art Right, sure, but it, but in Mimi Mi's case, right, like that has nothing to do with. The, there's no transaction history, which I think is what I'm really getting at, and I'm kind of fudding the need for preservation of, uh, you know, historical information being on the blockchain. I think you can just use Ethereum as a big computing machine and not necessarily as a storage machine, um, right. especially not as a record keeping machine. I think that you know you don't. I don't know. There's like use cases for it, but I think people in like the NFT space kind of take it to the nth degree and try to ascribe meaning to things that don't really have as much meaning as we would like to think. Uh, I think the people who are like finding these very old, you know, it was an image from 2012 on a name coin. Like I think that's mostly like a bag move. Like they're not doing that out of genuine interest. I think that they're doing it so that they can collect something that's like very valuable. Maybe that's like a stubborn way of thinking about it, um, or uh, like a jaded way of thinking about it. But that's the way it seems to me. And you know who who an NFT belonged to at one point. You know, people kind of like to make memes like, "Oh, like I got this one from this person um, in January." Like, "Oh, what, this is from when Franklin was like a mod in the Funks Discord," and, and that's like a crazy history. I think that's cool. Like, I agree that those should be worth more, um, but I don't need the blockchain to like prove that to me. Does that make sense? Because yeah, I mean, how, how do you? But I, how do you but prove I thought, it? Yeah. Well, I think that there's, yeah, I mean, there, I think, I think, I think Middlemarch is, I'm just sort of, sort of trying to weigh both sides of this. I, I feel like in some cases, yeah, like there is this idea, I think what Middlemarch is saying is that there is this idea of doubt with, with sort of non-computer verified 
Sure, sure, but that's the way right. we've worked for the last, uh, you know, <laughs> thousands of years. It, no, I don't, no, no, I agree. So, so my point has been before. I, pro- I think you've probably heard me say this: that some of the delight of art is the whole mystery of whether or not something is true or not. Yeah, it's the folk. I'm folklore. Yeah, I think that the generally understood truth is much more important than the actual veritable truth of of time and and space and history like what what people think happened is is the truth but uh, but that's pretty question begging though because when people so if it's a discord screenshot that's what people uh you know think that's a screenshot you know it's like people think also is is influenced by technology you know the way people uh you know interact with the world now versus uh well in true folk times well i'll give you an example though i'll give you an example i'm gonna break we have mad yak and chunk who've been sitting here with their hands up i would like to hear them good uh good morning good afternoon i'm gonna chime in real quick looks like um fair xyz is done with tropo so do we tag him and come chat Uh, yes. How do I do that? You're saying like a DM? Uh, maybe you could DM or just, uh, I'll tag him in the, uh, in the tweet below the spaces. I DM them and I will do the other thing. Good call. Yeah. I've been patiently kind of watching them to see if maybe they were going to run an hour or so. Cause I'd love to hear their point of view. For sure, for sure, for sure. Chuck, Chunk, what do you got? I've got three things to say, and by the time you answer the first one, I'll probably forget the other two. So I'll say all three at the same time. Then we can disassemble it because I forget things all the time. So the first one is about hiding stuff in plain sight. You can use steganography for things that are off-chain and... Uh, for on-chain stuff, you could probably do it with, uh, and I think I've, D- I've DM'd you about it before, but it's about using uh, group definitions inside SVGs. You can hide stuff inside SVGs and have that on-chain. Obviously, cost gas, but, you know, it's a thing. And I forgot the third thing. Fuck. No, I got it. Chia. The Chia blockchain is starting to, is, is going to come out with something called the data layer. And the data layer is on-chain storage. For I love it. Anything. I love it. Let me, let me just uh, first of all just wel- welcome though, because Mad Maddie, I suggestion I I ping fair. Fair is here. Uh, welcome fair. We've been uh, having a little bit wide ranger on you know what is on-chain and how do signatures work and you know it was sort of spurred on by your project, which uh, I saw today and thought was very very cool. Uh, in terms of the visual aspect and something that um, I at least think is a is a really cool thing to to have. We've been talking about it. doesn't matter who minted something, but like I believe it does. And uh, not only would I like to get credit for something that I minted, but maybe something else that I want to buy. If I looked at this token and saw, hey, this other person minted it, maybe it'd be more valuable because that person's uh, famous. And so, you know, the question that we were kind of talking about is, you know, how is this information uh conveyed uh, and verified, conveyed to the blockchain and verified in order to mint you this, you know, how do I know that when I see uh, one of these minted tokens that the person who holds it, or rather the person who's, who's on it, I guess it's sold on, the person who's on it, the person who's hold it, how do I know they actually minted it? And what we were talking about, and, and you know, I, I'm curious on your perspective on this, is that, you know, the information about who minted what is not 
an on-chain concept. So it's impossible for the uh, contract that is minting the minting minted tokens uh, to, at the time uh, one of these mints is being verified, uh, check to see uh, who minted the token in question and mint the mint commemoration token only uh, uh, to the person who, who, who did that. There has to be uh, an external source of truth because this is only available in you know events and transaction receipts and this kind of thing. And so uh, really what there has to be uh, is uh, uh, basically, yeah, someone else who's not on the blockchain, who's not involved in this transaction, vouches for the fact that you minted it and, um, you know, gets that information from an API and does whatever. And then, you know, in this case, it's a, an address in the contract, which uh, seems like it has done some things, but, uh, you know, is essentially from a user standpoint, kind of a random address. And so the question is, you know, this is a token that's sort of commemorating the fact that you minted something, uh, but really, I think what it's doing is commemorating the fact that this address, that's kind of this random address, thinks that you minted something. And, you know, it's a great uh, website. And in life, you don't get perfect everything. But uh, is that a lower standard of, uh, of verification than, than, you know, you might want? So curious uh, for, your, for your thoughts on this, if I'm missing something. Yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks so much for welcoming me up to the space. I'm super excited to be here. Hello, everyone. I uh, hope you're having a lovely evening. Um, so my name's Zach. I'm one of the co-founders here at FairXYZ. And yeah, it's awesome to be on the spaces. So I think you, you raise a, a great point. Um, the reality is that, as you, as you know, and as, as you mentioned, correctly mentioned, um, there are things that you simply cannot verify, you know, from within a smart contract in itself, right? So smart contracts can't listen to events, they can't read transaction receipts. So it's, it is virtually impossible unless you, you know, bring in some form of like social validation, which still would not be on chain. Um, to have this, you know, cryptographically proven within the smart contract in itself at the time of minting. So, of course, you know, we rely on essentially APIs uh, or in our case, yeah, we were pretty much, you know, listening to events on the blockchain and then using that as a way of, of providing people with their minted tokens. But I think one of, the things, one of the things that we understand and one of the things that we want to start providing for users as, as experiences is there are things that, you know, due to the limitations in you know smart contracts and the way that you know EVM is currently built, you do have to bridge that gap, right? And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. But there are certain consumer experiences which we'd love to you know be able to provide in the most seamless manner possible. And sometimes that does involve a small degree of compromise. So, for example, you know let's assume that tomorrow a contract wants to allow list uh, you know uh, every single person that ever minted a Yuga Labs NFT, right? Any 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 kind of Yuga Labs ecosystem NFT. Um, today, you can't really do that, you know, well, today and in the future, um, you can't really do that from the smart contract in itself, right? You can't check someone's minter status um, by calling any function on the, for example, board eight smart contract. So you'd essentially be relying on an API, which would then, for example, feed into a signature. And then that would in turn, you know, be used to verify that that user was the person that minted and then you provide them with that experience. The way that we thought about it is, okay, well, the users are going to have to do that anyway. So how do we bridge that gap so that people can make native calls within their smart contract to understand that a given user minted a given NFT from a smart contract uh, in the past? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's this kind of weird compromise between, you know, we like decentralized, well, we love decentralization. Um, we love on-chain data. We love staying true to on-chain data. But there are experiences that people still need. Um, so how do we provide that to them? in the most seamless manner. And that was kind of the uh, driver behind the Minter token in itself. I think, you know, aside from that, um, it's also a massive community celebration, right? I think what we've seen over the last 24 hours has been super optimistic and like very positive sentiment around people that are kind of, kind of uh, 
reunion, <laughs> you know, almost like reminiscing that first moment of minting a certain NFT uh, and, and you know, the, 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 the beauty of having, you know, initially entered a community. So you've got people that minted, you know, Doodles, Bored Apes, uh, Cool Cats and all, other, you know, all sorts of other collections that aren't necessarily holders today. Um, but still want to be celebrated uh, for being the kind of early, early believers in that community. Hell yeah, thank you. I think that that's very well put, and, and I 100% agree. And I'm, you know, definitely I'm 100% on board with the concept. And I think, yeah, it's like welcome to, to to planet Earth, right? You can you can only do what you can do, and it's great actually that people have developed these standards surrounding uh, signatures that actually allow them to be this good for things that you can't do on chain you mentioned the allow list you know thing there was this old version of how people used to do this right this merkle tree thing which i kind of understand but don't understand that well but basically uh the signature based approach is just super 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 flexible to be able to convey hey here is a uh, um you know here's a short way of saying that this this piece of data is 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 vouched for and um um and um uh Sorry, once, uh, once, uh, okay, so, so, um, um, I can hop in here if you need a second. To yeah, just something. Hop, hop, hop in. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming to our space. Um, I, I, I think I'm a flutter for, for the, the mentor token. I think that they're cool. I think that it's, it's neat to have something like that, especially, you know, if, if it's at no cost to the claimant, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, you know, when I was reading about this, something that struck me was that it says that the the Minter token cryptographically proves that a wallet owner minted an NFT. Um, and I'm curious about, you know, using the term cryptographically proven, if we've just talked about, you know, it's not technically possible to prove someone was the mentor, even though it's, it's, it's a pretty close solution. Um, that's interesting. I, I liked what you said about, you know, what utility it could have and allowing you to token gate people who are mentors. Like, I think that's kind of a fascinating use case. I think it's kind of a fascinating use case for, just like some, I don't know, it's like a cool way to like look at someone's wallet and see, oh, they look at all these things that they minted um, instead of having to go on Etherscan or go on OpenSea or go on any other place that like records these histories and then and then look at it. So, you know, am I correct in saying that it doesn't do anything? It doesn't do anything new. It just does it in a new way. Um, you know, it, it's a new way of showing people this thing that's already kind of publicly available information. So I'm yeah. going to be all over the place there. but that's, No, uh... I think those are great points. Um, first of all, look, I completely appreciate uh, and really value the fact that there can be, you know, polarized opinions about the Minter token in itself. Um, I think, you know, in order to pursue certain degrees of innovation, you have to push certain boundaries, uh, which sometimes does involve compromise. I completely agree with you that, you know, wh the moment that you move things, you know, from being purely on chain, then it's not exactly the most comfortable experience for every single user. And I, I completely hear that. That's, an, uh, you know, for sure a fact. Um, I mean, when we say cryptographically improve, um, I guess, like, to clarify that, I, you know, when, when people are minting Minter tokens, as of now, we, we haven't seen, you know, any kind of breach of the data integrity to what people are minting, right? And we constantly monitor that. So 
right now, if you make a smart contract call into the minted token smart contract to check whether a certain holder minted a certain NFT, that as of now still remains true. Um, that uh, that that person was the person that minted that specific token. Um, of course, the smart contract in itself is also signature gated, meaning that you know when someone's trying to mint, they can't go and you know amend the um, the inputs into the transaction uh, once the once the once the transaction is about to go ahead. Um, so as of now, and hopefully forever into the future, when someone makes a smart contract call into the minted tokens contract, then they they are getting verifiable proof of the fact that someone did mint a certain NFT. Um, but that being said, you know. I do, I do hear your point, and uh, I think it's completely valid. I think it's a very valuable point. Um, within FairXYZ, just to let you know, as a company, we're very much focused on keeping everything completely on-chain and decentralized. So, you know, if you launch, so to give people a bit more context about FairXYZ as a platform, um, we're essentially an NFT no-code solution that enables creators to launch NFT collections completely end-to-end -end and also provides collectors with a pretty cool minting experience. But we can, you know, uh, talk about that maybe in another space or another point. And everything that we do within the smart within the platform in itself is actually fully decentralized, right? So if you upload artwork and then launch a smart contract with us, that's put an IPFS. You're the owner of your own smart contract, so we don't operate through you know some form of like centralized to call it something smart contract where we are managing a ton of collections and people are just minting individual tokens into that collection. So it is very much kind of like our end goal. Um, as a platform to keep things as decentralized as possible. But we also recognize that in order to provide, you know, user experiences that are, you know, great, and in order to onboard more and more users in Web3, uh, you know, you need to continue pushing the boundaries and, and exploring new ways of providing, you know, innovative solutions to, uh, to newcomers to this space. So absolutely agree with your points. Um, but, you know, just trying to provide cool new experiences and also a community moment, which I think, uh, you know, a lot of users have appreciated. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for, I, for sure. I think it's it's a cool product for sure. And, and I think that there is something to be said for products that are, you know, and, and I, I don't even mean this as a diss, but just products that are like good enough. Like, like you said, like there's no breach of data, like everything that you guys pull from your APIs to say that this person was the mentor. Like, I have no doubt that you're going to, you know, be right about that 99.999% of the time. Um, you know, I, th I think like in, especially in this space, I think we're kind of, uh, you know, purists to a, to a point uh, in terms Which of like, by the way. activities and stuff. But I, I think, yeah, for, for most people, uh, especially onboarding new people. Yeah, I dig it. What's up, Middle March? I cut you off. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, I think it's a... Um, it's an interesting question uh, about when you think about like the uh, shortcomings of signatures, you know, in general. And so just a couple of things that come to my mind are that one, uh, it really ties you to the website, right? You can't directly interact with the contract because you need to go to a website and have that website give you a token, basically. And so in order to, um, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's a conversation between you, a web server and a contract, you can't go directly to the contract. And so, you know, that mechanic is, is something. And then the other thing with the signature, I think more broadly, which is very interesting, in relation to a transaction, uh, is that a signature can never be undone, right? Once you say something and sign it, you've said it, that's it, it can't be undone. You can't later say, I'm gonna write something else, I'm gonna write a new letter that takes back the first letter. Because if you are in court and someone, uh, uh, you know, shows you the first letter and they say, hey, is this your word? You can't just say, hey, well, there's another letter out there somewhere that says that, you know, says the opposite of this. You can't unsay uh, 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 something with a new signature. And so, for example, 
uh, once this address in the case of fair XYZ, and this probably won't happen, of course, once this address signs something uh, that says this person minted this, if it discovers a mistake, uh, it can't then uh, withdraw that signature. Now, there are other ways to do that where you could have like a nonce on the server. So you could do a blockchain transaction and receive an nonce in the contract. You could do a blockchain transaction. You could do something like this uh, in order to invalidate, but, but, you, but you, you cannot invalidate a signature with another uh, signature, which I think is also uh, uh, very interesting. And, um, uh, and this has some implications for some stuff surrounding uh, lazy minting, which is also signature based, which I want to talk about uh, as well. Yeah, I think you're raising great points. I mean, like signatures themselves are, you know, they come with their shortcomings. I think, you know, as you said, uh, for um, it can be cumbersome to, 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 you know, be gated by a website instead of a smart contract. Um, but again, I think it comes down to the fact that when you want to be- m- provide more and more bespoke experiences to the end user, uh, you still, you know, you, you, you need to rely kind of a bit on off-chain um, stuff in order to provide, you know, a more optimal gas experience, for example, or being able to, you know, provide more inputs into the function, which can't be altered by the user. I think that, that there has to be also, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but I am also a believer in the fact that there, there has to be some degree of, you know, creator ownership over their own smart contract. Granted, once a token ID is, like a, an NFT is minted, then, you know, the owner is the owner. But up until that moment, the creator should retain ownership over, you know, uh, what is being created and what is their own smart contract and what's being put out there on the blockchain, right? So like, if, for example, I'm an artist and let's assume, you know, we, we, you were talking about lazy minting. And I think that's actually a, a great example. Of, like, let's assume that, you know, I put 10 NFTs on my website and uh, they all, you know, my, my, my smart contract is capped at 10 NFT supply. And I want that when user, a user mints a certain NFT uh, from, from the website in itself, they're actually getting, you know, that metadata in the token URI. If you don't include a signature within that transaction, then the end user could simply go into the transaction in itself, modify the token URI, and then essentially, you know, harm your end, the end result of your smart contract. So I think signatures are actually a very powerful way of giving creators real ownership over the artwork or the content that they're producing within their smart contracts. So that's that's you know something that I that I really like, and I think you know, good good leverage of smart uh, of, of signatures within smart contracts is is going to be a great way of enabling utility and um, and uh, new minting experiences to users, um, especially when considering the gas implications and how much lower it can be when you do this kind of stuff. Definitely. And I, and I think that, you know, I think that lazy minting and, you know, I think OpenSea gets a lot of criticism justifiably for a lot of things about the way it does in its platform and everything. But like when you think about the open minting thing, they, 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 they pioneered, uh, you haven't really seen anything quite like it. And I just think it's really an incredible tool, even though it's not fully decentralized and all these kinds of things. But the idea behind lazy minting, right, is you can create an NFT, quote unquote, create, right? It's not actually being created. But from your standpoint, as a user, you're creating an NFT, but you don't have to pay any gas until it is sold, right? So you don't have the uh, issue that has happened to me. uh, And I'm not the only one I know on foundation where you mint something and then it doesn't sell. And uh, Dabao, shout out to Dabao, who collected uh, something of mine uh, recently. But a lot of times it doesn't sell and you paid the price uh, uh, for this. And, you know, also, by the way, you can never you know, delete it if it doesn't sell, if you're embarrassed about it and, and all this kind of stuff. But uh, OpenSea came out with an idea that basically said, OK, you'll mint it, but you're not actually minting it. There's no blockchain transaction. What you're doing is signing a piece of data that basically says uh, anyone can mint an NFT described by this data and attribute it to me in the future, right? And so now someone goes and they say, ha ha, OpenSea contract, 
I'm presenting you with this little uh, letter that says uh, this, this NFT is by this other person. Mint this, attribute that minting uh, to this other person, and now you know, make me the, uh, uh, the owner of this. So why does this thing have to exist when it's just going to sit in the owner's wallet? Why can't it be minted directly to a, uh, a collector? And so one reason for this is that you lose the, the provenance, right? Like you don't actually know on-chain when it was actually uh, theoretically uh, uh, created. But uh, there's another kind of also interesting fact about this where, you know, uh, you might forget, right? The, the, there's no storage component of the lazy minting. Like you're on your own. It's not stored on the blockchain. The, the signatures are, you know, you're, you're on your own. It's an open seas database. So if you as the artist forget uh, what you've done, you forget the lazy mints that you've created, you forget what you've signed, there's no way then for you to take that stuff back. So someone could find it someday, and assuming the contract allows it, like maximum supply is not hit and all this kind of stuff, someone could find that thing that you're embarrassed about, that you think you deleted, you forgot about, and then mint it and have it be attributed uh, to you like any other uh, uh, lazy mint uh, uh, concept. So you know, I think it's, it's um, you know, very interesting to be able to say uh, you know, at the same level of security that the blockchain offers that I said this, right? It's the same type of thing as a transaction, but uh, you don't get uh, the, uh, um, the order, right? You don't get to be able to say, you know, hey, uh, I said this and then I canceled it here or something like that with a signature. You just get to, you know, say, say truths. But I think the lazy minting experience, I think, is one thing that OpenSea has done, you know, just really, really well. And from the standpoint of a normal human being, I think it maps on to, uh, how NFTs work, which is you sell them. You don't just put them in your own wallet and watch them, you know? So uh, I'm a fan of that. And that's only possible with signatures. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. And just to jump in real quick, um, I think a lot of the potential issues with what you were mentioning, for example, you know, the creator forgetting about the fact that uh, they uh, at some point, you know, created that signature can be solved if we improve smart contract standards at a whole, uh, uh, you know, across the whole industry. Or, you know, devs just adopt better practices, right? You could do things such as, for example, uh, I don't know, like uh, gating by nonce uh, or, you know, by block number or block timestamp. So maybe it's not, you know, a, you don't have the same provenance guarantee of like exactly when something was created, but at least you do have some certainty over which time period that thing was created. So, for example, you make signatures, which, you know, as a nonce have, I don't know, like a thousand block numbers ahead then at least you've got some degree of certainty that the provenance was within that time period. And again, these are all imperfect solutions, but with better smart contract practices and devs just paying a bit more attention to these kind of things, a lot of the issues, at least, you know, like 99% of them can be solved, uh, or at least that's my opinion. Right, yeah, and this is interestingly, this is why uh, I believe that OpenSea, whenever you make an offer, which is also signature-based, uh, by the way, uh, when you make an, an offer uh, or list something for sale, which is also signature-based, OpenSea just says, you know, uh, what's the expiration date uh, on this? Because they really want to push this idea of not having open-ended, you know, bids and offers and asks and all, not having like these open-ended financial transactions uh, out there just to really limit the chance that a year from now, 10 years from now, someone will accept an offer uh, that you made uh, today and, um, you know, and, and, and do something you don't want to do. So these all have expirations. And then OpenSea also has the nonce thing you described, I think, where you can make a blockchain transaction to invalidate all your offers. But I'm not sure. I don't think Open uh, Lazy Minting has like an expiration uh, on, on OpenSea. And, and it would be sort mm -hmm. of weird from a user standpoint if it, if it did, because it's like, what do you mean expiration? This is my art. What are you, what are you talking uh, uh, about? But, it, you know, it should. And, um, you know, there's probably a way to delete all of your old, you know, mints. Um, as well but um 
but yeah, and so this, you know, to me, uh, just also jumping into the OpenSea offer thing, right? Like this is also signature based. So if you are ever wonder how you are able to um, make an offer without paying gas on OpenSea, like you can bid on something, um, unlike marketplaces like not Larva Labs or other contract-based, chain-based, on-chain uh, marketplaces, it's because the thing that you are doing uh, is not actually doing a, a blockchain transaction. It is you are signing uh, a piece of data that says, hey, this is a coupon that you can bring and redeem for a blockchain transaction if you're on the other side. Like this is an offer. You can go redeem this offer uh, to the contract without any further input uh, uh, from me. But then, of course, the same issue, you know, the offers themselves are written down who knows where and you might lose track of uh, uh, of them all. So, you know, I think the signature thing is super important because it's the only way to get the good user experience. But then, you know, how do you kind of square that with, um, you know, when this abstraction breaks down? Like, for example, if you're trying to say like, no, 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 this is really saying, you know, who, who minted it guaranteed or like in the OpenSea case, like the classic old listings bug where some OpenSea will remove something from its UI uh, but can never actually... Uh, or at least before, couldn't actually remove the um, uh, the signature-based uh, uh, offers. But I'm 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 a fan of um, uh, I'm a fan of this, and 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 I think just on a practical level, it's the most important kind of um, you know off-chain. Uh, you know, and even you could do like an oracle, right? That's another way of doing the um, uh, the who minted what thing. But still, that's going to be driven by some signature, you know, somewhere. So um, you can't escape the signature pill life that we all live uh, now. 100%. And I think, you know, that there are solutions out there like you use like um, chain link solutions, for example, that, that kind of mitigate these problems. And by the way, like on the signature stuff for any of the listeners that could be interested, this is actually the reason for why you can, for example, when you list something on OpenSea, decrease the price um, gas free. But then the moment that you want to increase it, you actually have to pay gas. Um, that's because essentially you've created that signature. Um, which, for example, says that you're selling an NFT at 0.5 ETH, and that signature is there, and it's kind of that there forever until the expiration of of, of your signature. Um, so if you lower the price, that's fine, right? Because like if someone wants to go ahead and use your old signature and buy at the you know higher price, well, you know that's bad on them. But if you increase the price, well, you still generated that signature in the past, which lets someone buy at that lower price, and that's pretty much the reason for why you have to pay gas when you increase price, but not when you decrease price in OpenSea. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. That's a good a I've, good point. I've just uh, Googled and to teach everyone in this space something today. The study of truth is called aletheology. So that's what we're doing here today. If you want to be fancy about it, we are we are talking about aletheology. I knew there had to be a word, so I Googled. nice. That's uh, something you learned today. <laughs> Gold star for everyone here. Was epistemology that's the bigger one uh, well one yeah epistemology is just the study of like knowledge itself so what oh. is the difference between knowledge and truth that is a good question uh, on the wikipedia page for aletheology uh it says that it could be argued that aletheology is synonymous with epistemology and that dividing the two is semantics but i think I think there's a distinction to be made. You know, we're really talking about here when we're talking about a mentor token, we're talking about blockchain verified truths. That's not the study of knowledge, but we're, we're really studying what is the truth and who gets to decide the truth. I think it's like a more, you know, it's kind of semantics, but it's also like really hammering and like nailing down on like one specific aspect of, of information. Well, there's also this question of like, who was the first to discover something like someone who found who had oxygen in a bottle from some random experiment didn't know what it was so like typically right. with knowledge and i can tell like a 
sort of philosophy thing here. Typically with knowledge, there's the sort of idea in the air of, of justification, basically. You can't just be accidentally, uh, you know, uh, you can't accidentally have the truth. You know, I randomly found out the truth and now I have knowledge. Like, no, you have to have a, a justification, but it's more complicated. So quick aside into like one of the only good things of, of philosophy, uh, which is a thing called the... Um, the Gettier case, which was basically this this uh, idea in philosophy that happened not so long ago, like 50 years ago, which was a challenge to a very ancient idea that was from like Plato's era, even more so before, which was basically that the relationship between knowledge and truth is that knowledge is justified true belief. So if you're going to know something, it has to be true. You can't know a false thing. You can't know something that you don't believe, right? You have to believe it. But then there's this justification angle where you have to be uh, justified in forming that belief. You can't be accidentally uh, uh, right, you know? And so this was like this thing where uh, for thousands of years, people thought that's what knowledge is, justified true belief. And this guy came along, Edmund Gettier, and he basically wrote this paper, like two page paper that like demolished this entire concept and made him like, you know, super famous. I think he just died recently. And the paper was called is justified true belief knowledge. And so he created these uh, situations he called Gettier cases or we call Gettier cases, where uh, you had someone who has a justified true belief, and yet it is really counterintuitive to say uh, that they have uh, knowledge. So, you know, here's an example of a, uh, a Gettier case. So, you know, you're standing on, you know, your porch, and you live in the country, and you're looking at a huge, you know, lawn, and you see like this black uh, figure kind of uh, moving, and, um, you know, you're like, oh, well, I, I think that's a bear. So you form this belief that's a bear. Uh, it's justified because, you know, you've seen many, many, many bears in your life. And this is a black figure that's viewing. So it's justified. Uh, but it turns out uh, that the thing you are looking at uh, isn't the bear, but there's actually a bear behind you. The thing you're looking at is like, say, a, um, you know, a different animal or it's a uh, picture of a bear or something, uh, <laughs> right. uh, something like this. And so yeah. uh, justified true belief. It's justified. Uh, it's true, but is it knowledge? Do you know uh, that there is a, well, a bear? And you can, you know. Yeah. I mean, this is my greater point. And Zach, before you joined the space, I, I was I was fudding the blockchain overall because I, I think that folk truths are like more important than like computer veritable truths. And I think that's the thing is like you can't know, right? I mean, imagine if no one knows if it's a bear or not, or not a bear. Does it matter? If everyone believes it was a bear, then it was a bear regardless of if it was or not. So I've just added to my Twitter bio, folk atheliologist, um, which I think is, is kind of funny. But I think that's true. You know, if, if everyone believes that something is true, then that makes it true until proven otherwise. And even sometimes then people won't won't believe you. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting question to say, like, does the blockchain veritably say, is it cryptographically proven that such and such thing happened? If everyone believes that it's something else or if there's a lot of evidence to the contrary, um, you know, or, you know, even uh, if everyone just says something, I, I think that truth is just as valid as whatever the blockchain says is true. Yeah, but I think there's a little bit of a weird thing here, which, you know, one thing you could say, which I really... Uh, agree with is if you look at back at, for example, you know, the history of science and you see, okay, were people applying the scientific method? Were they really doing something like scientific or were they just kind of 
doing whatever, where they just kind of like taking this, believing that thing, discarding right. this thing, just like doing whatever. And so yeah. you can have this perspective that, well, there's actually no truly theoretical, like in the capital T way of looking at the history of science and uh, watching the scientific method evolve and get better. It's more just a sociological type of exercise. Like why do people say the things they do? Who's in the in-group? Who's in the out-group? Who doesn't have power? And so I think that that is a uh, very valid thing. I think that's basically uh, true. There is no such thing as a uh, scientific method that goes on. It's a sociological uh, question. And when people change their mind, it's more like religious conversion than persuasion uh, in the history of uh, uh, science. But that does not change the fact that at a given time, everyone thinks that they are doing something. You know what I mean? Like no one actually believes <laughs> right. I'm just in a sociological landscape here. I don't know anything or care about anything. And you do too or whatever. So no, dude, I just think you that, live in a society. When you look at it, when you look at it from the outside, you know, it all seems quite ridiculous. But when you're on the inside, you can't just you have to get out of the bed in the morning. You know, you can't right. just say, well, you know, what do my folk knowledge things tell me I'm going to do today? You, know, you have to have some you know, thing. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I, I, mean, this I agree. Is, you know. This is the fun. This is the fun of the blockchain and having these discussions about, you know, oh, like I'm a, I'm a purist and I, and I think the Minter token is fake because it relies on off chain. I mean, does it matter? Like, do do we actually care if it's 100 percent on chain or not? And the answer is no. Like good enough truths are better than good enough. Good enough truths are true. You know what I mean? But it's in, yeah, they're but, fun discussions to have. It, it, we, we go down a semantics rabbit hole, but it's it's interesting. But then yeah, you I have think... Gucci punks, right? <laughs> Sorry, let me say quickly. You have Gucci punks, right? Minted on uh, it was actually good for me, sort of, but minted on the OpenSea yeah. shared contract, which was blockchain enough at the time, and then deleted from everywhere, basically. And so occasionally the science thing, you know what I mean, occasionally. But then it's like can't get overly obsessed with it. Sorry, go, go ahead, Zach. No, I was just going to say, you know, like truth is uh, is very much like a function of time, right? And I think this is like maybe a, a very, uh, an odd statement to make, right? But like, you know, today we all call the color red, red. But then if tomorrow the whole world went colorblind, then we'd call it a different color, right? Um, things evolve with time. And I think that's what we've seen with science, as you guys were mentioning before. I think, you know, 500 years ago or 600 years ago, if you told the world, you know, the people that the world is flat, then that would be truth, right? And very few people would be able to challenge that. Re the reality is that... Um, truth or reality is just absence of empirical evidence of the contrary and that's really how we operate as humans right that's why most things in science are called theories and they're not called you know certainties or you know absolute you know like basically truth is just lack of empirical evidence of the contrary um and that's really how how we as humans operate right like it's the same reason for why we think that a dollar is worth a dollar right like especially considering that there's no gold backing like why why is it the <laughs> right. case well because right. because because we, because we believe it right and and there's no empirical truth to the other, you know, otherwise, because if someone came to me tomorrow and said, hey, um, this dollar is actually worth zero dollars, I'd say, OK, well, I'll buy it for you for free then. Right. Um, so that, that's that's re really how we operate as humans in a society. I think we always have to come to consensus as to what we think is truth or at least can be near enough to truth due to you know lack of empirical evidence to the otherwise. Well, it's, it's interesting because you mentioned colorblindness. It's like. 500 years ago, people didn't even know colorblindness existed, right? So it's like, if we all went colorblind is one thing, but like, what if there's a new type of colorblindness we haven't even discovered? Like people didn't even know that that was possible, right? And then, and then they discovered it. So it's not just about uh, going into an existing category called colorblindness. It's like, what new categories don't exist? But I would go even further and say that uh, empirical facts have nothing to do <laughs> with it. In other words, all science, this is why scientific theories are never disproven. Every scientific theory, uh, has the ability to incorporate any empirical fact. You just put a fact in there. You, you, you adjust the theory to fit the facts. This is what everyone 
constantly uh, uh, does. And if you look at like the history of like Einstein versus Newton, like Einstein's theory, the, the, the story goes about like general relativity and disproving Newton. The story goes that there was this weird motion of the moon of the of Mercury, uh, and uh, Einstein explained it, and, and Newton didn't. So that was the empirical fact that proved Newton was wrong and Einstein was right. But of course, there were a zillion things that Newton's theory didn't explain. And a lot of times, uh, Newton's theory went on to improve to explain them. They like discovered Uranus this way, like all kinds of things like this. So with an empirical fact that is counter to a theory, you just don't know uh, whether the theory is going to eventually account for that. And so what you have to do uh, as a believer in that theory uh, is you have to try to incorporate that negative uh, uh, result. So there really just is no way uh, any sufficiently like dominant scientific theory, there is really no way to uh, uh, disprove it. And so what you see uh, is the adherence to the old theories never even change their mind. They just basically uh, uh, die. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's looking at the history of science is like a really, really, really dark uh, exercise versus what you're uh, uh, taught in school. And yet I love rationality too. So it's like, I, I'm, yeah, it's fun. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm with it and against it, but you know, the blockchain, it's a good one too. I wanted to add some background, by the way. I'm sure that you came into this space. I mean, I think Middlemarch tweeted and like added your account. And so that's probably why you came in here. But just for context, um, Middlemarch, myself and Piv are like an art collective. And we do all like fully on-chain art. And it's like, you know, every, everything that we've done is like a, a custom contract, like just for the specific project and um, all of this sort of thing. So we're really nerds about this kind of stuff and uh i think a lot of times we just like get on these spaces and go on go down semantics rabbit holes but um but it's fun we're like when when we see projects like yours kind of sprout up and it's like oh like this person's doing an interesting thing that's kind of in our wheelhouse um i don't know it's cool to be able to talk to you and to get information and see other people in the space that are like thinking about these things and kind of uh i don't know it's just what we're what we're like nerds about but, yeah, I love it. This is an awesome, awesome space. I'm definitely going to have to tune in a lot more. <laughs> this is great, guys. It's really great. So if anyone out there, you know, we've been talking and I, I love it. And um, Zach's into it. Dub likes it, I think. Anyone out there, uh, reader topics, any reactions to what we're, what we're talking about? Uh, I know that uh, Michael of Indelible Labs, amazing product. Uh, I'm pretty sure, I think, I'm basically sure that uh, his contract uses Merkle proofs, not signatures. I've always kind of wondered about that. Uh, maybe I can learn that later. But if anyone has used a signature or is interested in this kind of question, anyone? Uh, well, you can you can uh, uh, at any time uh, uh, say what's up. But what else is on the um, uh, is on the agenda here, Dub? Where, where what, what what what's what's the next? Uh, we level. did the we did the Michelin star thing. We did uh, now we've done this. Um, you had three points, didn't you? Did we? What, what's the third one? I forget. I think it was this vault question, basically back to um, vault billing. Yeah, yeah. It was tough to explain to Nuno about the vault because he, I don't know, like he spends a lot of time in the NFT space, but I don't think he thinks about it very deeply. And so we were kind of having to explain to him like what gas is. And he was like, why does this cost $400 to stake 103 NFTs in the vault? 
<laughs> it's like no, like it doesn't. It, it, it's not asking you for four hundred dollars to do that. It's just the Ethereum blockchain is asking you for four hundred dollars to transfer one hundred and three NFTs at once. Still, it's sicker shock. You know, I think right. the um, uh, the gas thing. Um, so what is what is what is a vault basically? Actually, before I say this, I called out uh, Michael. I put him on blast. He's a speaker now. Michael, set me straight. <coughs> set you straight with what? The uh, why don't you signature? use signatures versus the Merkle? Oh, uh, the Merkle. I'm using a Merkle uh, tree for the allow list. I'm assuming that's what you're referring to. Yes. Yeah, so um, whenever you sign a transaction, uh, I mean that's, I mean that's verifiable enough in the transaction that you're the one that created it. So as long as you are on the Merkle tree, it, I don't really need a signature for that. But why not just do signature? First of all, maybe you could even just explain to me. Like this is kind of embarrassing, but you've got to just admit when you don't know something. I kind of know what a Merkle tree is, but. Can you tell me what that is? And then why do you need a Merkle tree, tree uh, at all? I mean, my understanding is a signature, whatever Merkle tree is, the signature is more flexible. So why don't you just do that approach, which would then be future proof. But I don't know. What are your feelings? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, to be honest, I, I hadn't put a whole lot of thought to using signatures for an allow list, but uh the thing with that i guess would be it just would need a you know it need like i guess my my api or someone's api to validate the address that is on the allow list and then pass a signature along to the front end so that they can then mint with it um if i understand correctly right Whereas if you have a Merkle root, um, you can uh, use that anywhere. You can use the Merkle root to mint from Etherscan. Um, so we've had people use our um, Merkle roots to um, uh, have minting done from their own websites also. Uh, and all that is needed is that Merkle root, and then the uh, proof is uh, sorry. The pr- I'm sorry. I'm I'm talking about the the Merkle proof. The Merkle root is stored on the contract, but you just have to pass in the Merkle proof along with your address, which is in the transaction. And then uh, basically, what happens is whenever um, you have a list of addresses. You can create a tree of different hashes that all uh, link to the same root, which is the Merkle root. And I'm trying to think on the fly in detail on how this works, but basically, um, whenever you have a Merkle proof, it is saying that uh, this address um, with this hash will result in a correct match with the Merkle uh, root that is already on 
the contract, but I can link to a more detailed explanation on how that works. No, I, I need the basic thing. So let me see if I, this is really good, though. So if I understand this correctly, uh, right, basically, there is some piece of data that's not so large that's stored on the contract. And yeah, then, it's actually very small. So it's yeah, efficient. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I mean, maybe maybe 16 bytes i'm i'm i would have to check but i think it's maybe 16 bytes okay and so then that's sort of the contract and then the user uh who wants to mint submits their address right that's message sender uh and then they also submit a piece of data another piece of data that um has a um that's the same for every single person or customized to them uh the merkle the Merkle proof is the same for everybody. I'm pretty sure <laughs> you, you think I would know off the top of my head since I, since I made this, but um, it's, it's been a long day. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, you think but, I would um, know since I'm talking about but, the alternate way to do um, it. No, uh, it is the, I'm pretty confident it is the same for everybody because you create basically the Merkle proof, Oh goodness. Let's see here. So you you create the Merkle proof with the uh string of addresses and then or the array of addresses. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that it is the same for everybody because otherwise um it wouldn't really work with uh Etherscan just copying the Merkle proof from the front end, but so then couldn't the Merkle proof be stored in the contract as well as the Merkle root if it's the same for everyone? Yeah, no, that's I mean, yeah, I need to <laughs> I need to go confirm that. But uh that's that is a uh that's a good question. You're being put on the spot. This is your final exam. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> you're, you're gonna fail allow list one oh one. I know, seriously. But so the overall uh, it's been idea, it's though, been it's been like what I think uh I think maybe a month since I last researched it. Well, congrats so. on the success of Indelible Labs, by the way. I don't think we've talked together in a spaces in a long time, but since then, you've had like a ton of super successful stuff launch on there, and it's been really cool to to see. So, there's your your flowers. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> Sorry for failing the 101, but uh, basically, <laughs> the the mechanics of it, though, what makes it so efficient is the fact that you're storing such little data for a um you know potentially like a list of a th you know thousands of addresses you're storing just one one little proof that you know that combined with an address will uh be able to be validated so um it's it's really nice um but yeah the, basically the the nice thing i liked about it over signatures just to wrap it up was the ability to just use it um, without needing a, uh, a middleman, like an API. But even then it's like, well, you kind of need a, a middleman and that you need at least, you know, to know the, um, to know the proof to pass in, you need to know the initial list of all of the addresses so that the Merkle tree can be recreated so that you can re-grab the proof for that address, 
and then pass that into the uh, smart contract. So there is some front-end work that needs to be done, but I feel like it is more decentralized and it is just a feeling. Uh, it feels more decentralized uh, just because it doesn't need um, necessarily um, our, our API, as long as you have your allow list saved, you could recreate the Merkle proof. Um, and so whenever we're building stuff, we try to remove ourselves as much as we can um, from like, you know, ha like handcuffing ourselves to the creators so that if like we ever, you know, if I got hit by a bus or something or AWS banned us or whatever have you, I mean, uh, you know, you could, you could keep operating. So also, I think one, one other thing that's, I think, good about this, as you, as you say, is that um, I got to really learn how this works. But from your description of it, basically, that uh, when you have a, um, a signature, not only do you have to have a server, right, but you also have to have a private key in there somewhere, some piece of secret data that is being used uh, to create this package of, you know, I'm on the allow list and also this other person says, says that's true. And so, you know, if you have a private key, where does that go? A config bar on your server, you know, that's a, um, a complicated uh, thing is managing private keys at, at any sort of reasonable scale. And so I think from your description, right, the Merkle tree is something that uh, the quote unquote private key, the secret uh, is, 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 is the private key of the person who is allowed to make the transaction to store it into the contract. So there's no kind of, um, you know, other private key being stored except for the private key that's being used to sign the transaction that stores the, uh, uh, the root basically. So I think that's like another, uh, yeah. you know, advantage here. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, and that's, that's what I liked about it. Again, it just feels more decentralized in that, um, and going and correcting my, my statement earlier, it is, unique per address but it is um otherwise like you were saying before you know kind of what what's the point but um whenever you know a, a user enters in their list of addresses into our system uh the nice thing is using this they could they could copy that okay. same list and uh that same list will always result in the same merkle root and then when you, when whenever you um, provide that uh, with a specific address in the tree, it's always going to result in the same Merkle proof for that address that's in the Merkle tree. So, it's uh it's nice, and it's so also basically, pretty low gas as well whenever it's being validated on chain. So with the so anyone with the address list can uh, validate that the root is the right root and can generate each, uh, you know, tree, uh, each leaf or whatever it is for, for each individual person. Yeah, okay, the, so you don't exactly. actually the leaf have is... to have any logic there. Right. Yeah, exactly. That, but that's the the hat. Yeah. It's like basically like the, the, each leaf is like, um, you know, can lead to other leaves that lead to other leaves that lead to an address or something like that. And then, you just follow that down to the proof and it will be validated or not be validated. Interesting. So let me ask you this question. 
basically this is a tool for list inclusion essentially you know you can't do yeah exactly. other stuff with that's this. what i was saying it's you know it's for allow lists only um speak you know hitting on what uh i can't remember his uh the name the guy's name from fair uh but uh was it justin zach zach, zach. i don't know why i said justin uh, anyways <laughs> um Zach was talking about, you know, requiring signatures for their minting site. I mean, we, we've talked about doing something similar too, though it is, you know, again, you know, it's, it it is not as, uh, decentralized. Uh, it's, it's, uh, whenever you have minting open to the public, um, bots can be a bitch. So, um, We've had uh, some bigger collections launch where they've been botted pretty bad. And we have, you know, there's only so much you can do on chain only that will help guard against that. Uh, you, you can, you know, you can limit, you can limit it to where the signer of the transaction is the only one that can mint, but someone could spin up like a thousand different wallets, all signing different transactions and mint at the same time doing that. They'll all be different transactions, but, uh, you know, people can find ways around botting. But if you are, you know, if you have, you know, full control over the front end and the front end is the one delegate, you know, cr- the you know, front end is communicating with the back end, creating signatures and passing it back down. Uh, you can really limit uh, who can mint by having different uh, different validations on the front end where bots wouldn't be able to pass the validation or things like that. So I think that there is some value there, kind of just talking about uh, what was mentioned before. So Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is pretty... Oh, sorry. Um, is that okay if I jump in? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, for sure, yeah, Michael, really appreciate your thoughts. I completely agree with everything you're saying, and just FYI, that's exact, exactly the reason that we run signatures on, on our platform. Um, part of the technology that we provide to collections that launch with FAIR is anti-bot technology. So the fact that um, um, if you have a very, very popular mint, as you correctly mentioned, what you, what you usually see is um, they get botted, um, and you know, then even if you signature gate, what then you'll see is that people will essentially start using like Selenium or like, you know, different avenues to generate, you know, thousands of signatures across thousands of different wallet addresses right, and even yeah. separate IPs. Um, but the moment that you have that kind of communication between front end and back end, uh, that's the, uh, that, that's the way that you can prevent these bots from actually attacking your, your, your mint in a way. So like, you know, there's, there's always like this um, trade-off between, as you said, like full decentralization and how much you want to rely on a server um, I think, you know, mint token aside, like when you look at it from the perspective of mint, um, just the pure mint going through a smart contract in which, you know, the base URI is already defined and pretty much all the data is already there. Um, the benefit of, uh, you know, relying on signatures or Merkles is <clears throat> you, you essentially retain a bit more control over the mint. And, you know, the data that's going into the smart contract in itself is still, you know, uh, and, and not to get into the debate of, you know, truth again and so on. But that is, you know, uh, cryptographically okay right like that's that's you know 
that's okay from the moment that it does hit the smart contract. And all you're doing by signature gating is just throttling, essentially, you know, who are the users that can actually go into this? Because ultimately, and maybe to talk a bit more about like kind of mainstream adoption, um, you do need to start introducing these features into, into minting experiences um, because, you know, users aren't always going to be ready to face, you know, a gas war or like having to compete against bots and people that script in order to front run you in a mint. But let me ask this question, though. Like when I, the other day, uh, I think I was using a faucet, like a girly ETH faucet, uh, the POW faucet is really good. I was asked to basically distinguish cookies that look like dogs from cookies that look like cats. It was actually pretty hard. <laughs> and then yeah. I was asked to say which of these bottles is broken versus which is like just kind of twisted in an AI way. And I was like, oh, my God, like this is way harder than the, the parking the hardest, one. The hardest one I had recently was which which cat is an adult. And they were like a oh, combination wow. of all cats, but some were adult cats. Wow. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> when does when does what when does this kitten no when is this kitten no longer an adolescent? I, I don't know. <laughs> You're a Tom. Yeah. This, it, this it's trying to help the AIs in that very school. There's also which dogs are smiling. That, that one was good. But are we headed towards a world, right? Like there's a pretty clear web two thing about this, which is which dogs are smiling and look like cookies. Is that the future for, you know, indelible labs or fair where you go and you see the straight on, you know, trying to, you know, sign up for Gmail or whatever it is type of thing to mint. So, um, well, I mean, for me, for us, I, we plan on making it optional whenever we add that in uh, just because I don't like with like, again, every, everything that we do, we try to be as like, you know, we don't want to handcuff ourselves to you. So if you want to be handcuffed to our APIs and stuff, then that's on you. But I, I wouldn't want to force it. So we'll have it as an option for people who are expecting like a big, you know, you know, release like, you know, where if they opened it up, it'd be like minted out in like two minutes that like happened. Uh, and so it's, you know, you don't want that. And if you're expecting that big of a launch, then you probably should uh, lock it under signatures. Um, but, you know, we have other others where they do full allow list mint outs and that also prevents bots. Uh, it takes a little bit longer, but. Um, it just it depends on what the user wants, but we will make it optional. At what point is this all like too complicated? Like if you're a, like an artist and you're like, I want to do something like I think doing it on chain is cool. Like I want to I want to release something. This, it's like a lot to stomach, I think. Like I think as an artist in the space, you know, I, I'm OK with solidity. I've like I, I've spun up an ER721A contract by myself by like patching together code or whatever. But wasn't very good um I, I think if i didn't have developers and if i didn't have middlemarch like developing for me i think i would have just quit by now like i, I don't think i would be doing nft art anymore because there's there's like a lot right like, wh like why does it have to be so complicated well uh, i mean that's kind of how, the point. Like how far away are we from uh, that, that's the beauty of what michael and indelible that labs and what ferrix was that is doing right that exactly yeah exactly right like that you don't need to worry about that like it's i guess it's like similar to to being a you know video content creator like in the early 2000s like imagine that if you wanted to upload you know, media and on, onto the internet, you'd have to let, let's assume that there was no YouTube and no, no website for you to, uh, you know, upload media. 
uh, you'd have to hire a team of developers that would create a website for you where essentially you'd have to you know upload your media and like put in that you know kind of like all the metadata etc like that would be a very cumbersome process but then along come platforms such as youtube and they essentially facilitate it for you so that the only role you have as an artist or a content creator is the upload process and doing everything else yourself oh, i'm sorry doing everything else um as a platform and i think this is very much like what michael was referring to and this is also kind of what we do ourselves at, at fair right which is if, if a creator comes to us and they want to launch an nft collection you know we support like generative art and all this stuff so they can just upload their trades they can you know um, spin out a generative art collection they hit a single button which decentralizes their artwork on ipfs and then deploys their own smart contract but then all the anti-gas or anti-ball technology that we provide is under the hood and they're not even aware of it so we don't provide like captures it's more like under the hood like just checking for ip addresses like just very usual botting measures but i think you know this is like and i you know i don't think everything about web 2 is is necessarily very good or very bad um but you know th these experiences do exist in web 2 and users don't find friction in them because it's all under the hood and that's why you know there there is value to having a very solid back end behind a web 3 project right because mm -hmm. there are certain things that you just don't want your users bothering with because that that amount of friction i mean we live in a world right now where where people don't want friction in their experiences right like people now do like single sign-ons or like you know like google sign-ons because they don't want users creating an account it just takes too long and like the friction to, to that you know purchase is they want to reduce it as much as possible um when you want to you know stay completely true to to, to, to everything that's happening in web3 you also need to understand that there's a small compromise on how much user friction you're providing and consequently how difficult you're making the onboarding of users because at, at its core, the technology is fantastic um it's also complicated and it's very difficult to, to take on. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Michael, on, on what I just said. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I agree with the concept of removing as much friction as possible. It's a tight rope to walk. Uh, right. Just because with, I think like in web two, it's easy. It's uh, like, I, I come, I mean, I, like, I think most of us come from Web 2, um, since that was, you know, the, you know, where <laughs> we were. It was life. Before this. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but, um, you know, coming from Web 2, you know, that was kind of like, that is the mantra. Remove as much friction as possible. Whereas I feel like now it's like, it's, at least it's, it's, it's hard for me to decide sometimes where, you know, should I be removing, should I, should I just be doing this automatically and removing the friction for the people using our system? Or like, again, going back to what I was saying before, make every, like make things where, you know, uh, there's a way out if they want, uh, so that they're not connected to us. But every time you add these kinds of options to a system, going back to what you were saying uh it's friction so and that's like a big no-no in web 2 right yep. and so um it's it's hard it's um uh so i i definitely see where you're going at um and i i think that you know uh it kind of makes me you know think about you know the whole apple and android uh mm. dynamic where you know i i actually hate categorizing myself as the android side on this because i'm a huge apple fanboy uh but i you know i feel like i've been taking the more android approach and maybe that's bad maybe that's good i don't know um 
I've been kind of just doing it, um, you know, taking like one scenario at a time. Um, we're kind of learning yeah. as we go. But um, yeah, I think the the biggest thing, though, for me is that, you know, we aren't backed by any VCs. We don't have millions in funding. It's just Rob and I, uh, you know, kind of bootstrapping the software. And so I think that also might be a big uh, factor in why we make things so loosely connected to our system is because we don't want to, you know, promise that we'll, I mean, trust me, I want to be around a year from now and, and be, you know, uh, one of the biggest players in the game a year from now, uh, two years from now, I want to be, you know, one of, one of the go-to places for a, a release, but, um, you know, you can't, you can't guarantee. Right. And so to our users advantage, I, I always leave things loosely connected, but yeah, we should, we should talk more. I, I guess for context of my comment about it being complicated, um, like I'm, I'm an artist in this space and recently I have been doing, um, UX and UI for minting pages. So I'm not a programmer or like a developer, but I'm designing the experience that the user will have to go through in order to sell their art. And this has, you know, this has revealed itself to be much more complicated than I ever thought it would be. You know, when you try to upload a video to YouTube, I've been comparing, you know, what's the upload process for Instagram? What's the upload process for YouTube or for, uh, you know, like to sell something on eBay? Like how much information do you have to fill out? there's a cumbersome amount of options that I have to give to the user just to get a token uploaded and listed for sale. You know, never mind all the, you know, this is a bot protection. We're using Merkle trees for allow list. We're using this, 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 you know, even beyond that, there's just like a lot of things that you have to ask. Um, and I think that this, the, the UX and UI thing is like a big aspect of it because most, most current web three websites, in my opinion, have like very bad UX, uh, that makes it very confusing. Um, so I'm, I'm right now I'm kind of like brainstorming and trying to figure out what's the best way that I can like get a user to upload a token, you know, like you said, like frictionlessly and not have to ask them a million questions. And uh, I, I don't, well, I don't, I, don't I don't think you have to use technical terms. No, uh, definitely not. Definitely obviously. Not. But um, yeah, uh, it's yeah. But it, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's definitely it's uh, it's a fine line. Right. Um, you you want to, you know, provide information, but you also want to limit friction. What is uh, what is uh, Zach? What is your uh how, what's your methodology to 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 walking that line? Is it is it more? Do you lean more remove friction? Um... Yeah, I mean, hundred percent. Like uh, removing friction is kind of like I think a number one priority. One one tries to think about how do you onboard the next. You know, I think this is like the the, the most said sentence that I've heard over the last couple of months. But like, how do you onboard the next billion users? Right. And, and the key to that is, is friction because people are used to a Web2 experience. And I think it's unrealistic to expect users to, you know, adopt a brand new technology 
it with a lot of friction in between. Um, that's usually, you know, you, you, if you see kind of like innovation curves and, and the way that technology adoption goes, you always have kind of the early adopters, then you have, you know, kind of like a few more people that are a bit more curious, then you have mainstream adoption and the late arrivals. But to hit that mainstream adoption, which is kind of the center of the of the curve, which is where the vast, vast majority of users come from, you need, you need very little user friction. Um, and this is, you know, like, we, we talk about this being like a very web two experience, but it's actually just driven by human psychology, right? Like it's not, this is frictionless because it's web two. It's more like this is frictionless because humans like frictionless experiences and thus, you know, web two adopts it and probably web three will end up adopting it too. Um, I think, you know, uh, you um, dovetail, you were make, making some great comments on the fact that like, it's just extremely, you know, painful, you know, to, to, to launch your own smart contract, etc. But um, going back to what Michael was saying, like you don't, you don't necessarily need to um, make the process technical. And even if, re if you remove terms and remove wording, you can also do a lot of the work under the hood for the user themselves, right? Like, for example, if you see that an artist is, I don't know, uploading one of one art um, and they're, they're not interested in, in additions, then you can also automatically understand that they probably want an ERC-721 and not an ERC-1155, right? So you can infer that straight away and then make that pretty much make that decision for the user because there's no reason for why they'd prefer one smart contract above the other. Right. Now, granted, this provides a bit less flexibility when it comes to launching a collection because some decisions are made for you. But the reality is that if that decision is correct for 99.9% .9 of users and it makes the process, you know, 10 times more frictionless, then it's probably a good compromise to have. And I think I think this goes back to kind of like um, our previous discussion on truth, which is like certain things don't need to be 100% certain. They don't have to be 100% flexible. If you can reach, you know, much higher conversion and much less friction by getting 99% of the way there, that's actually good enough. And that's probably better for the end user. Um, so yeah, that trade-off is obviously a very, very tricky thing to, to balance, uh, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah, I've been tempted in designing UXs to add an advanced user option before you get to, uh, you know, kind of all the basic questions that you're going to have to answer. And I don't know if that is a good solution, um, but I, I think that it could be helpful to some users to, to open it up and say like, okay, like if you know what you're doing here, we can let you look uh, underneath the hood, so to speak. Um, and then just have a very streamlined, you know, oh, you want an open edition? So I, I'm not even going to explain to you what an 1155 is. I'm just going to give you an 1155. Um, real quick, uh, Middlemarch Rugged, and he's in our group DM saying that he can read the closed captions of what we're saying, but he cannot hear us. And I don't think that he can speak either. Um, so I don't know what a good course of action is here, but that is the, uh, the situation we're in. I think if he leaves the space, it'll rug us all and cause the space to end. Uh, yeah. If the host leaves, it gives like, I think a minute before it'll auto close. Oh, so if he does it in under a minute, we can, <laughs> we can keep the space open. No, this is so what I like if he, uh, if he just, if he just leaves. Did we rug? Is this? I think I think it's. No, I'm. I can. <laughs> Middle March text me saying, uh, message me saying, I'm rugged anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, well, guys, it's, it's it's a bit late here, so I'm gonna go. But it's been an absolute pleasure, you know, being in this uh, conversation with you guys. Really, some incredible thoughts. Uh, really appreciate it. 
Um, Michael, great to hear also from another um, kind of NFT no-code solution um, founder. Uh, I'd, be, I'd love to uh, stay in touch. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for everyone for your time. and your Yeah, thoughts. same here. Thanks for coming by. I appreciate you having that. Uh, appreciate, what am I trying to say? Appreciate you being on the space. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good evening. Peace. See you guys later. Bye-bye. Okay. Um, well, it's been uh, two hours. So this is probably a good time to wrap it uh, before middle March needs to rug us all. But thank you for listening to the final episode of Capsule 21 Weekly, number seven, the first episode of our podcast. And uh, we will talk to you all very, very soon. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Peace.